Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And like always, we have the freshest of topics to talk about and the freshest of guests. The guest for this episode is Jude Dixon, the accomplished former vice president of AR at Arista Records, a former director of AR at Def Jam Recordings, the former general manager of John Legend's independent label Homeschool Records, and the former manager of recording artist Estelle. Dixon is currently the center subject of the HBO Max docuseries On the Record, which presents her journey as she grapples with her decision and has become one of the first women of color to come forward and publicly accuse hip-hop mogul Russell Simmons of sexual assault. It also features the stories of other women uh, accusing Simmons of sexual assault, including, including founding member of the first all-female DJ and rap crew, the Mercedes Ladies, Sherry Sher and former model and now domestic violence awareness activist, Saleh Adams. The film also dives into the abuse she suffered in the hands of L.A. Reid during her time at Arista. We talk about the documentary, along with her impact on the music industry, including her work on projects like Method Man and Mary J. Blige's I'll Be There For You, You're All That I Need To Get By, the show soundtrack, which gave us Red and Meth's How High, Q-Tip's Amplified LP, in Estelle's Shine LP. We also talk about how the subject of racism, colorism, misogyny, and rape culture are present in our culture, the music industry, and how it relates to her experiences. Trigger warning, there is discussion of rape and abuse in this episode. Uh, Before we get into this episode, uh, what's going on in my life, um, the big news in the world uh, this week is that Joe Biden has selected... Kamala Harris as his running mates in the presidential election. Uh, that first day that it, uh, you know, that news came out, there was a lot of like mixed feelings about that. And I know it's people venting about Kamala Harris's, you know, prosecution record and stuff like that. But I hope that you know everybody gets their uh, their venting out because this is who the ticket's going to be. You know, there's nothing different that you can do. Uh, so you got to, you know, at this point, you got to either pick a side, you know, are you going to vote for Trump? Are you going to vote for Biden? 
or are you going to just not vote? You know, you got to pick a side at this point instead of just, you know, complaining. Because the mo like, if if that first day when they announced Kamala Harris as the uh, as the VP running mate for Biden continues until Election Day, man, all you're just going to be doing the GOP's work for them. And you're gonna, you may sway people who are on the fence to be like, yo, they don't really like fight like this over on the Republican side. So, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, get your venting out. I understand. But, um, you know, and definitely Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have their, uh, their faults. But if you want Trump out of the office, you know, you need to figure your own, your own shit out. And, you know, it's okay to be critical, but you don't need to like, you need to know when, you know, you need to, you need to know when to support also. And I just really want Trump out. So, you know, I'm going to support Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, besides that, on the podcast front, yo, the Renaissance Soul Podcast, my Detroit music podcast, has a definitive launch date, and it's going to be next Monday, August the 17th. I did my uh, first episode in where acclaimed hip-hop journalist, author of The Big Pay Payback, Dan Charnas, he interviewed me about you know my life in uh, the music scene, about the original uh, Renaissance Soul website, what to expect, and it was incredible. It was really if you if you really want to know a lot about me, in in regards to my my relationship with uh, music, definitely listen to the first episode of Renaissance Soul. Um, go you know go it's on, it's already on all the. Um, the, the trailer is up on all the streaming platforms. Uh, so just type in Renaissance Soul and should come up. Please uh, go ahead and follow, subscribe right now. And just so you're ready, um, I'm uh, you know, next Monday, I'm also going to uh, re release the two episodes that I originally released last fall. So it's going to be the, the interview with Big Tone about the Big Shoes album that he did with uh, DJ House Shoes. And then the you know the twentieth 25th anniversary of rock band uh, Sponge in their Rotting Pinata album. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna get three, three, three episodes next next Monday, pretty much. And to celebrate, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna have a little bit of a launch party. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be on Sunday, probably about you know five or six. It's gonna, it's gonna be on Twitch. Uh, twitch. You know what is it? Twitch. Com. Twitch. Tv slash fresh is the word. Um, I'm just gonna play. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna play Detroit classics, obscure stuff. You know, unreleased stuff. Uh, for you know, mostly hip hop probably, but uh, other genres too. And um, you know, the the longer it goes on, the weirder that's gonna get. You know. So be on the lookout. Um, I'll uh, post more information on my social media at uh, freshofthepodcast.com, at uh, you know fresh of the word podcast on Instagram, and um, and yo come just hang out, man. It'll be like just like kicking it in the kicking it in the basement or the living room at the crib, 
and just listening to music, you know. I would like to have just like a cool little crowd, you know, of people to, you know, you know, geek out to some, you know, whether it's some Dilla shit, some Black Milk stuff, um, some unreleased hip-hop stuff, some old hip-hop stuff, some new, some, uh, you know, some electronic music, some dance music maybe later on. Yo, it's going to be, it's going to be dope. So, uh, you know, that's about it for now. Um, like, I'm really excited to get back with uh, the, you know, the Renaissance Soul uh, podcast. I've been having to, like, dig deep into my brain, the depths, the annals of my brain for all, like, the Jay Dilla knowledge that I have to talk about it recently. I've been going through my uh, music collection, editing it on Discogs, and I was just going through, like, my CD collection of all the of all the, <laughs> like, you know, just, like, mixtapes and stuff that I got from Detroit. I'm like, whoa, look at this thing. So uh, there's going to be a lot of great stories and information to come on Renaissance Soul. So please uh, subscribe at, um, just you know, type in Renaissance Soul and uh, subscribe. Or, you know, you can always listen at freshwithpodcast.com. All right, without further ado, let's get into my interview with Drew Dixon. The word from our sponsor. Welcome back to the Fresh of the Word podcast. And like always, we have the freshest of guests for you. And my guest for this episode is Drew Dixon, who formerly was a ARNR executive at Arista Records and Def Jam Recordings. But uh, currently, you might not, uh, know her because of the on the record uh, documentary that was on um, that's on HBO Max. It's a um, a powerful haunting story of of Drew Dixon, and who's collaborated with the likes of Method Man, Mary J. Blige, Estelle, Whitney Houston. There's a long line, and we'll get into that in a moment. But as she, you know, she grapples with the decision about being one of the first women of color in the wake of this Me Too movement to come forward and publicly accuse, you know, hip hop mogul Russell Simmons of sexual assault. And also, she talks about her experiences with L.A. Reid. So uh, we're going to talk about the documentary, and then I definitely wanted to talk, hear stories about this amazing woman's impact in hip-hop because, like, in those, in those times, in a short time, she had, had the hot touch on, on some of the most, like, on some of the most craziest hip-hop, like, moments you know, so thank you, uh, Drew Dixon, for uh, joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm really <laughs> happy to be here. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm glad you're here talking with me. When I was, um, I started seeing things online about the documentary, and I was like, you know, I, and I, I've been somebody who's been listening to hip hop since I was 12 years old, so that was like '93. So okay. I got to really like be you know as a teenager be really a part of that golden era that happened in the 90s so you know all these things that you are a part of like you know i bought that stuff like first day and stuff like that actually i'm gonna show you look at that no way my original soundtrack cassettes this is the original one that i bought like probably the day it came out let me tell you i typed the credits on the back with my actual hands (laughs) And that's why I made sure I got my co-executive producer credit. And one of my 
I, one of the things that I always think about is, I don't know, if, I mean, I literally typed executive producers, Drew Dixon and Russell Simmons. And I was like, uh, maybe I should make it Russell Simmons and Drew Dixon. I was like, uh, okay, no. I'll make it co-executive producers, Drew Dixon, Russell Simmons and Drew Dixon. And I kind of think if I literally put myself first and just said executive producers, he wouldn't have cared um, or noticed. And that was obviously before the assault. And, you know, when I still believe that, the sky was the limit in terms of my potential as long as I worked hard and had hits. So I'm very proud of that album and I'm really excited that you have a cassette. Yeah. I was like, I was like, when I was, when I was, uh, when we're going through the documentary there, you know, they showed a close up of your name on it and, and everything. And I'm like, yo, let me go. Oh, it does say that. <laughs> I was like, sweet. All right. All right. Cool, man. Like, like that album, you know, that introduced us to, you know, Redman and Method Man together as right. this, like, right. this yeah. thing that Insanity. all these years later, those guys were like... Man was the beginning, and yeah, it was insane. And, um, you had yeah, How they, High, they, and then you had the movies that came after that. Oh, right. That was, exactly. like, the catalyst that, you know... Yeah. And Eric Sermon produced that track, and I had actually, before I got to Def Jam... I'd worked at Zomba Music Publishing and I'd signed Eric to a publishing deal. So I had like a working relationship with Eric before and I'd worked with Method Man on his album with the Mary J. Blige duet. And so it was just sort of like we were in the zone and uh, yeah. Yo, it's crazy because, you know, you'll see this in the, you know, the documentary is like, you know, you you sparked that idea of you know the 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 Method Man and Mary J Blige uh, joint you know that would become like yeah. that's like a staple that's like a you know a crowning moment of hip hop during that time because it's something that like we've had like you know there was those soft songs too those like ones that like both men and women could be like yeah that's the why I fought so hard for that when when I first got to Def Jam Method Method Man's album was done Takao was finished. And I was really just sort of picking up from the previous A&R person who'd actually signed him, a woman named Tracy Waples, who had amazing ears. And I really just inherited a finished album. And I was listening to it and sort of helping with the sample clearances and the administrative like dotting of the I's and crossing of yeah. the teeth. I was just learning the ropes. And I heard this interlude that was literally, I mean, I talk about it in the film, Shorty, I'm there for you anytime you need me, for real girls, me, your world, believe me, that makes me feel better than woman, creepy, yeah. whatever, that. And I was, at the time, dating somebody. I was, you know, when I got to Def Jam, I was in a relationship with somebody that was like a hip hop head. And what Meth was saying and the way he was saying it reminded me actually of my boyfriend and our relationship. <laughs> I nice. love the idea that Meth was expressing love in such a generous and giving, vulnerable way, but in the vocabulary of hip hop. Yeah. And I just thought it would have been a shame for it to only be an interlude. And so that's when I had the idea, if we get married to sing like hooks and Meth adds another verse to the record, we could have like a song. And not just the interlude. And I had to really like convince Russell to give me the shot to do that. And then he was like, okay, well, if you can convince Puffy to call Mary, then you can go for it. And that's how it started. I dropped the dat 
of the interlude off at Bad Boy. Yeah. And by the time I got back to my desk at Def Jam, Puffy was calling and he got on the phone with me and then I tell that story. In the yeah, film. I saw that, man. I was like, yeah. I love that story. I was just like, you guys yeah. were just going back and forth, like right. the ideas. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's like, once, once I started hearing those stories from you, I was like, I got to hear more. I got to hear more because I know. Now, honestly, another thing that's not in the documentary, when we finished the record, the puffy version, because, okay, so RZA was making, when RZA found out about it, RZA said, I love the idea. Send me Mary's vocals and I'll do it. RZA didn't know Puffy was doing a remix. He thought he was just cutting Mary's vocal. So every day I would take a cab from the hit factory where Puffy was working to Chung King where RZA was working with the reels that we would rewind to look like nothing had happened to them since the night before. So RZA could do his remix without knowing there was another remix. <laughs> and at the end we were like, so guess what? There's two remixes. But the other thing I wanted to say is that when we finished Puffy's remix, we were at the hit factory kind of listening to the final version, except for it was 20 minutes long. And it was me and Puff and Mary and Biggie. Meth wasn't there. And we danced to the record for like 20 minutes. And we were just like, we stepped in it. It is insane. That's one of those records that so like, excited. it's, it's, it doesn't happen that often where it's like the women love it, but the most hardest of thugs like it right. too. And, and that's, I was so adamant with Russell to give me the shot because I felt as a woman who loved hip hop, it was so important to show that side yeah. of, of what it meant to be like a dude who's a hip hop head who's like in love with a girl. Like, why not? Why can't we do that? Yeah, because um, like that record showed what hip hop could be, you know, during there's, you know, the 90s was crazy because there was so much competition in hip hop that you were getting like classic albums every week and right. every year the sound was changing because yep. of because of the the, uh, the, the competition. Yeah. So at the same time there was still like a, a little bit of a stigma stigma attached to uh, hip hop. Very much. Very much. And you address it in um in in the documentary about how like there's you know, there's, there's so much misogyny in hip hop, in the lyrics and everything. And, you know, that kind of, and you guys would just kind of like laughed it off, but in hindsight, it kind of set a precedent for certain. You know, I wouldn't say I laughed it off as much as I thought it was like a vein, but not the whole thing. Like I thought it was maybe like a poisonous branch of the tree that the overall hip hop tree was this glorious thing that was worth fighting for. Yeah. And that if we could make a, enough records like that duet that showed a different side of it, we could sort of counteract a balance. The yeah. Misogyny records, the misogynistic, I guess, records and show another side of it. I didn't realize though, as a 23 year old woman, which is how old I was when I got to Def Jam, that the misogyny in the records spoke to a disrespect for women that was actually toxic and potentially dangerous. That I was in this environment where women were really just denigrated and yeah. that it was setting a tone. And I'm not saying it's unique to hip hop. The film talks about misogyny in so many genres of music and frankly in the culture at large. Yeah. But I don't think I realized as a young woman that 
language matters and language sets a tone for other kinds of behavior. Yeah. That's what I didn't get. Yeah. And what was, uh, and another thing that was like pointing out, like during that time was that, um, um, that when, you know, you were able to, how did, looking back though, like right now, do you, you know, what do you feel about your here? Okay. Here's the question that I wanted to ask. There's like so many questions in my head right now that I want to ask you. You, you had these, you had this experience with Russell Simmons, which he raped you. And then you later on have this experience with LA Reed where he's not going to take you seriously unless you sleep with him. Right. You, you had your experiences even with Leo Cohen, like on that first day of your job. Yeah. Where he he's and which which one may, may say your uh, your impersonation of him was spot on. <laughs> Anyone who worked for Leo Cohen in the '90s has a Leo impersonation, and if they don't have an impersonation, they didn't work for him. Yeah. Not everybody has one. Mine but, is not the best. There's some people that have phenomenal ones. But best. you have these poor experiences with these executives, but you had a good experience with, uh, with Clive Davis. Yes. When, you know, we went to Arista. Yeah. But did you have any poor, like when you talk about these records, like even when you were talking about those records in the documentary, even though they have so much pain attached to them for you, I could still see the excitement in your eyes about the um about the the records themselves. Did you have any problems with the actual artists at any time? No, I didn't. And you know, look, I I will say that there are many people who say, "Oh, Russell Simmons can't have done this to Drew Dixon or Sly Abrams or Sherry Hines or Jenny Lumet because he's always been nice to me." Look, people who are capable of antisocial deviant behavior obviously can't walk around acting like that every single day so just because i didn't have negative experiences with other people i don't want to in any way take away from what someone else may have had in terms of their experience i i you know i i know how painful it is to come forward with these stories that i am inclined to start from a place of belief when anyone says anything about being abused in this way. But in my experience, I was very well treated. I had a cordial relationship. I mean, Biggie was like one of my, like, you know, friends, like yeah. biggest supporters. Like we rooted for each other. I met him before he put his record out. And, you know, and he called me whenever I got a job promotion. You know, the last time I saw him alive was when he called me to come to hear the entire Ready uh, Life After Death album. And it took me like 10 times of him calling before I finally went because I didn't actually want to go hang out in Puppy Studio because I never, like the energy there was always a little bit like uncomfortable. And I was just like, I didn't feel like glamorous enough to go there. But <laughs> Biggie was like, you have to come. And right. I literally, that, that, you know, that's the last time I saw him. But... Biggie was cool. Meth was cool. You know, Meth and I flew to Atlanta to do a remix on Capleton's Wings the Morning. I signed Capleton. You know, Meth and I sat next to them on the plane. Like, Meth was mad cool. Like, I had no issues with him. You know, I hear I mean, a lot I of good, like, stories about Method Man in regards to the people so from the cool. industry that he's worked with, you know. I, I thought he was lovely, you know. Um, 
I mean, I worked with a lot of guys, you know, I mean, I worked with Pharrell, I, you know, I, I introduced Pharrell to Babyface and he did a record on Babyface that came out on 9-11, like actual 9-11, oh. which is why it didn't blow up. Because I think it's a dope, dope record called There She Goes. Um, I, I, I introduced Pharrell to Prince. They, he did a remix on a Prince record because we had Prince signed for one album at Arista. You know, I mean... I worked with a lot of these guys and honestly had nothing but the best experiences. I mean, 50 Cent is a rapper who's spoken out against this documentary, but I worked with 50 on a remix for an artist I signed named Toya and 50 was cool. Like, you know, um, like, you know, I, I, in fact, one of my favorite stories about him was I was studying for the GMAT because by this time I was really starting to give up on the music industry because LA's harassment was really making it impossible for me to actually do my job. Yeah. And I had a GMAT study book for the, for business school in my purse. And at the end of the session for the toy remix, 50 came over and said, I saw the rec the book in your bag and I could tell that you didn't want anyone to see it. And I know you were vice president at, at Arison. You probably don't want people to know this, but I just want you to know that I really respect you for going back to get your GED. And I mean, I was studying for the GMAT, not, you know, GED, but nonetheless, I was like, you know what? That is so cool that he went out of his way to say something supportive of me advancing my education as a woman in this business. And so I like was actually a fan of his. So it was really upsetting to me when he was so vocal against this documentary. Like he doesn't know me. He wasn't in the room with Russell Simmons when Russell attacked me and he was naked and wearing a condom. And I was fully dressed trying to get a CD and go down and get my car. Cause he told me I had to pick up a demo, you know, Fiddy wasn't there. So I don't know why 50 has an opinion. And you know, there's 20 women that have come forward with allegations of sexual misconduct by Russell Simmons. I think 12 of us are public about having been, assaulted so that was devastating but i had great experiences working with so many of these artists but i also understand that sexual violence is about power dynamics and so you know i was powerful in some ways i had an anr gig at death jam i had an anr gig at arista you know i got to new york city my mother was the mayor of dc when i first got here yeah. i'm not stupid I get that I had a little bit of a, you know, buffer around me, but Russell Simmons and LA Reed are two of the most powerful black men period in, in the game, if not in the culture in general. So vis-a-vis -vis the two of them, I didn't have enough power to be safe. So it's so much about relative power dynamics. So do you think that's the difference between why like you had those bad experiences, you had these horrible experiences with those two men, but the artists you had great experiences with because they didn't maybe feel, no, there wasn't I'm a- gonna say, I'm gonna say, I believe the vast majority of the artists in hip hop are good people, yeah. they're good guys. I have no reason to believe that like all these guys are running around like violating women. Right. I, I wouldn't say that, I, I didn't see that. That was not my experience. So, no, I'm not saying that at all. I can tell you Russell Simmons is a serial rapist who right. set a trap for me and raped me when I kicked and physically fought him and cried and said no. And L.A. Reid, who I had met 10 years earlier when I went to an outcast mastering session in 1993 when I worked for Zomba Music Publishing and had heard Players Ball on a Christmas sampler and I wanted to sign Outcast Publishing 
and organized noise publishing. And I found out from a friend in Atlanta that they were mastering at the hip factory. And I just showed up and LA Reed was there and was like, who are you and how are you here? And LA Reed and I became friends and he would always ask me my taste in music because he couldn't believe I'd found out about Outkast before they'd even put a record out. So my relationship with him was excellent until I worked for him. And suddenly I couldn't pass go or collect $200 without him signing off in it. And the next thing you know, he wants me to meet him at his hotel night after night after night after night. And he made it really clear what that was about. So they were kind of, was it, do you feel like it was like they felt threatened by your power? You know, it's so interesting. I've not thought about it that deeply. I have a really good friend who's convinced that the reason Russell escalated from harassment to actual rape that night when he said to come upstairs and pick up a demo is because the show soundtrack was the number one R&B album in the country. And I was the co-executive producer. It was the number four album in the country. And she believes that it was about keeping me in line because I was like, I, I, on the Mary J method man duet, I didn't type the credits. So it literally was my idea, but I didn't even get an A&R credit. And so that wasn't like a golden ticket I could use to get out of that job. But the show was, and I do sometimes wonder if these men used sexual violence and sexual harassment as a way to keep women yeah. in line. When the show soundtrack was your, was your first assignment at Def Jam, did did they have any sort of faith in that soundtrack to begin with? Did you feel like there was a mood of excitement? And why do you think you got that uh, assignment? Well, I know I got the assignment because I worked for Russell. Russell hired me and forgot to tell Lior I was even coming to the office. The, the head of A&R, Jeff Trotter, wasn't told that I was the new A&R director. So he was not nice to me. And then he was replaced by baby Chris, Chris Lighty, who was frankly not nice to me and was not a fan of mine. And, you know, Russell was the only one that gave me stuff to do. And the show soundtrack was, you know, Russell's first movie attempt. This is before The Nutty Professor. Like his first kind of movie soundtrack combo. Yeah. You know, in this polygram deal. And he gave it to me because, like, I was his, like, you know, protege. In a, in a way, like, the confusing thing about that relationship was I actually was somebody... He believed in. He let me try my duet idea with Mary and Meth. He gave me the show soundtrack. When Lior was ignoring me, I was like, I had to meet Russell once at the Barry Bar. I would have to meet him in public. I mean, meet him in non-working environments because Russell didn't have an office at Def Jam. You had to catch him in his car or catch him in his restaurant. So I would find ways to catch him in these places, but also try to stay in public places once I realized that he would do this inappropriate language and behavior. Yeah thing and i remember going to the battery bar and being like i have 11 cassettes stacked on my desk desk of original songs for this soundtrack representing various regions of hip-hop and nobody is taking me seriously i can't get the lawyers to call the managers and the lawyers and the labels to do the deals for these licenses lior won't tell the lawyers to set up a meeting with me I don't have a marketing budget. And finally, like Russell called Lior and yelled at him. And the next day Lior called me in his office and he was like, Drew, is, 
is my door closed? Is my has my door ever been closed to you? I was like, your door is closed right now. He's like, don't be a smartass, Drew. Don't be a smartass, tall, skinny. My door is open. Don't go behind my back to fucking wrestle rush. When you have an issue with me, you come to me. And I was like, I just need deals done. We have a hit from Tupac. We have a hit from Bone Thugs and Harmony. Who the fuck is Bone Thugs and Harmony? Trust me, they're dope. We have a Biggie record. We have a Tribe record. This shit is the bomb. And we need deals done. And I need you to call somebody at this company so we can actually get more than cassettes and I can get reels and we can actually make a record here because we're about to be late for our own movie. And that's when he actually put this amazing lawyer and Gary Watson, who's in the documentary, who was a counsel to Def Jam on the soundtrack. So Gary and I started working like just, you know, mano a mano, like deal by deal, phone call by phone call. And then I had to call Eazy-E to get Bone Thugs approved and all Easy E wanted was to meet Run DMC. And I was like, that's it? So that arranged, I was like, you don't know them? How is that possible? So I arranged for Easy to have dinner with me, Russell, you know, Joey, Daryl, Jay at the Barry Bar. And Brett Ratner joined because he was Russell's boy. And like literally, that's how we got Eric, right? Easy E to sign the release. And then, I kid you not, a week later, Easy called me and said he like had AIDS, and I thought he was joking. Wow. I hung up on him, and then he called back, and I was like, "Are you serious?" He died like a week after that. Wow, man, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. So the point is, why did Russell give me the show soundtrack? I think on some level, Lior also didn't take. Russell's new venture seriously. Lior wanted to focus on the music. Yeah. His belief was Def Jam is a record label. Rush is a management company. Your strength is music. You are doing too many things. He already had Fat Farm. Now he's trying to make movies and soundtrack. And so in some ways, I think Russell gave me the show soundtrack because I don't think the, the movie stuff really had Lior's blessing. And at one point I asked Lior if I could fly to LA to meet the directors to get a better feel for the film so I could really figure out what to do and he was like oh nice try getting a trip to LA I was like what like fine so I never got to go to LA I never met the directors in person until the soundtrack release party so that's why I just made the soundtrack my favorite artist from across the country because I thought it was important yeah. to represent genres regions women and also dance hall. You know, like I thought we should represent each aspect of hip hop. And then I took the interludes that I asked the directors to send me and just hit the interludes and put them in between the records to make it sound like the songs on the soundtrack had something to do with the movie because they kind of didn't really. They were just songs I liked. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. No, that, that, no, the show was a really dope uh, soundtrack. And like it kind of, it kind of, yeah, like you said, it went into all these different regions and styles and everything, but it all kind of worked with each other. And, you know, we got the Red and Meth song, uh, you know, we got blessed with that, you know. And it was just like, it felt like we were seeing, a, you know, different sides of a lot of people on this, on, on this record, too, you know. It's like live hip hop, live hip hop, West Coast, LB, you know, summertime in the LBC, RB Soul with Mary. But you also had What's Up Star, so like a female rapper who could spit for real. 
you know, like yeah. tried for the backpack vibe. LL had the kind of Mac Daddy record. Like I was. And one of my favorite like, songs of all time in summertime in the LBC from the Dove Shack. Ah, so good, the Dove Shack. Love that song. <laughs> yeah, Love that song. So, um, you know, there's a couple. There's a couple records that you are a part of that um, I really want to talk to you about. Um, you know, during these times, and then one later on. One, um, you were uh, you were a part of uh, Q-Tips uh, Amplified. Um, yes. Being someone like me, who you know, I'm from uh, the Detroit area. You know, that was something that uh, you know Jay Dilla worked on. You know, that record a lot. Sort of. What was your yeah. uh, what, what was the stories about working on that record? You know, I did not like really know Dilla. Like, I know he's a legend. I, I'm, you know, it's weird. I was just interviewed for a book about Dilla and I must have met him in passing, but my experience on Amplified was Tip and I had known each other for many years through, first of all, my very first job in the industry was as a college promotions intern at Jive Records. Yeah. So I met Tip like in passing in the building. And then I really got to know him better through a guy named Gary Harris, who was an A&R guy at EMI. He signed D'Angelo. And Gary was really my mentor. Like, if I had a single most important mentor, it was Gary. And Gary and Tip were friends. So I knew Tip through Gary. Tip told me that he was trying to get out of the Jive deal. You know, Tribe was not going to make another record. And I hung out with Tip for, like, two years. You know, like, Moomba... I hung out with Leo DiCaprio because that was Tip's boy. David Blaine was doing like magic <laughs> tricks, you know. And, you know, Tip had just gone through a fire. His house had just burned down. And the Germano family that owned the Hip Factory had set him up in like a writing room at the Hip Factory, like a windowless room with like mad crates of records because he'd lost a lot of his records in yeah. the fire. And so... I'm like a studio rat. Like I'm one of these people that doesn't really like the club. I'm not really that comfortable. Like I, I can't really dance. <laughs> and I like to just listen to the music and pay attention to every little detail. Yeah. Like I'm standing there in the dance floor listening, like forgetting to dance. Cause I'm like so intently listening. Um, and so what I love to do is go to the studio and sit in the back, not bother anybody and just watch all the little pieces come together. Yeah, just... So I would go hang out with tip in this writer's room and he would be playing Steely Dan records and this and that. And he was sort of just like making Amplified in that little room, kind of like as an extension of hanging out. And there were people in and out of that room and, you know, but it was kind of like just a hang. I feel like my job in Amplified, Tip said that, you know, he missed working with a band because there was no one to bounce off ideas. And he was like, I like, you come through, I play you stuff, I can bounce ideas off of you. And that was sort of my, my job on that record, because Tip is so talented and he's self-contained. Yeah. And, you know, there was this one song that was added at the very end. We had literally already mastered the album. Tom Coyne had mastered it at Sterling Sounds. And then Tip was like, I wrote the song, I just cut it. And it's this, like, mellow song. I think it's called Feel It, Do It, Breathe It or something. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And it's like really, it's more like an old school tribe record. It's more contemplative. And I was like, I'm so glad you did this because you're going through so much. And I didn't feel there was a record on the album that felt like some of the like processing and the sorrow and the contemplation 
And so I like fought to have that added on. So I was like, I think it's important. So for him, I was more like just a sounding board. You know, he's so yeah. good. Yeah, a lot of that that record was kind of like he was kind of like going out a little bit more than what you heard from yes. Tribe, yes. you know, and it was a little jarring for a lot of people at first because yes. he's like, yo, this is kind of weird, you know, and, um, well, and then he it, really went out with the next one, Kamal the Abstract. Yeah, like that was like way left. We had fun making that. We put him in like this teeny little weird ass <laughs> studio with like pink and purple walls and one, you know, one room. There wasn't like an ABC room. It was just one room and downtown and that was like hippy dippy and he really wanted to just experiment and i thought you know he deserves a shot to do that he's so creative and yeah he's such a music head you know that he wanted to just play with different ideas and i thought did, that was cool did he ever have like you know the thoughts about you know uh is this going to alienate the tribe fans you know is this no. going to be too weird you know or was he just doing what he wanted to do I mean, Tip is aware of his image. I mean, Tip almost has, like, two facets to his personality. There's, like, celebrity Q-Tip, and he's very aware of that. You know, he was on the Velvet Rope record with Janet. So when I was working with Tip, every now and then he'd have to, like, bounce to, like, go hang out with Janet or go jump on stage with Janet at Madison Square Garden real quick, <laughs> pop out and do Got Till It's Gone. You know, and he definitely had that, like celebrity persona at that point you know i mean there was like one night where i had to literally personally bail tip out of precinct one because he attacked a paparazzo or whatever paparazzi whatever you call a singular for like taking pictures of leo and he like attacked this dude and i was like what <laughs> i'm in jail i was like i thought you were in the studio i was like no no i was gonna be in the studio but i'm in jail like, okay and he's like can you come get me i was like i'm at acme he's like oh my god can you bring me some fried chicken i was like yes <laughs> so um and he's like, you know, chained to the chair, but in the office talking to everybody, telling them stories because they're all tribe fans. So Tip definitely had his celebrity persona, but when it came to music, he was about the music. Like, I don't think he worried. And my, my impression is that while he was aware of his star power as, a, as an artist, when it came to the recording process and the creating of records and songs and rhymes, that was something that came from a very authentic, un sort of pretentious place. And he would just, you know, I guess hope that his fans would like give him some room to explore and follow him and be patient and wait for him to come back and be whoever they needed him to be. But I think part of what he was really looking for in leaving Tribe was the room to really be more experimental because he is, I mean, he literally has maybe the deepest encyclopedic knowledge of music of anyone I've known other than that guy, Gary Harris, I mentioned, who was my mentor who actually passed a couple of years ago. Um, so the whole point of his solo project was to try different stuff. Yeah. And, I think he was prepared to let the chips fall as far as how people accepted him. During, you know, this is um, something covered in the, uh, in the documentary during your uh, time at Arista, you were trying to sign Kanye West and yeah. also John legend. Yeah. And LA Reed was not even, 
was not even going to give you the option to even like rel- well, you let me audition Kanye. I did get that far. Yeah, you got audition, um, but it was just like no, reluctant, whatever. He's mean. LA Reed has this quality where he can go hot and he can go cold. And his cold is really like cold and kind of like abusive, like verbally abusive and he would do this thing where he would be really sweet, really respectful. I mean, I've known him since I crashed the Outcast session in 1993, and now we're in 2000, you know? And so there were times when he was just super respectful of my ear. I mean, I'd had, by the time Ellie Reed got to Arista, I brought in My Love is Your Love for Whitney. I brought in my, Maria Maria for Carlos. I brought in A Rose is Still a Rose for Aretha. You know, I'd helped to make, Big you know, the whole Whitney album. I, I, I brought in Nobody's Supposed to Be Here for Deborah Cox. I made Brand Nubian's reunion album. You know, I helped with The Boy's Mind for Brandy and Monica. I mean, you know. Crazy I like, records, man. Crazy records. Right. I mean, I was like in a place where I felt like, I mean, I'd, I we'd already had made the tip record. And so, you know, I'm thinking, surely you respect me and, and, like, we're not going to play this silly game. Like, why? And so he would be really nice and respectful of me, and then it would just get a little more flirtatious and a little bit more. Yeah. Sit next to me in the back of my car. Now he's playing with my hair, and it's it's getting a little bit more, crossing that line. You know, I knew Erica. I knew his wife before they were married. I knew them when they were dating. I would go to events and sit next to her and talk with her. Like, she's cool. Like, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And... And then it started to be more like when I would kind of, it was clear that I wasn't going to go any further than sitting next to him in the back of the car and letting him play with my hair. Then he would just turn cold and everything I did sucked. And he would just be mean to me in meetings. And and then it would sort of drift back because I'd be like a little bit more smiley and laughy just to kind of try to get him to be less mean. And then it would drift I mean, he did this with an artist I signed named Toya from St. Louis. She had the number one contemporary hit urban crossover record in the country, Churban, we used to call it. I do. She was in the Nelly camp. Yeah. And I mean, this record was testing through the roof. This was not like a matter of opinion. The call out research nationally was phenomenal. The album was done. LA loved it. And there was a meeting, this is before he passed on Kanye and before he refused to even audition John, where he'd asked me to come to the hotel the night before to listen, quote unquote, to the Toya album. But I've already been asked to come to pick up a demo. So I'm already knowing that's a no-go. <laughs> right. Not suggesting he's a rapist, but I'm not even trying to create any confusion around yeah. any type of situation having made that mistake, not that I gave Russell a signal ever, 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 but even just to be in the room, you know, I don't want to be, be in a room with you like that. So he wanted me to come, but he left messages on my machine. I'm, a, I'm, I'm studio hopping. Like every night I would leave the office after listening to demos. And then I would just go to the hip factory, go to sound on sound, go to wherever, like all around the city, asking them at the front desk who's in tonight because I would invariably know somebody and then I would just go in and hang out because I just would like sitting in the back of the room yeah. kind of listening. It's like listening to the orchestra warm up before a Broadway show. I love <laughs> that sound yeah. and that's what I like that vibe much more than like going to a party. So, you know, I was 
studio hopping. I was working on some record. I don't even know which one at that point. And he kept saying, come by the hotel to listen to Toya album so we can talk about her marketing budget and the game plan. And I just stopped answering my phone. I just let it go to voicemail. The next day we're in a staff meeting. Toyo's name was printed at the top of the agenda. The promotions staff starts talking about how well it's doing at radio. They're like giddy. They're like, okay. And they're like, and this is what we're going to do. And we're going to, we're going to get a bullet and on billboard and boom, boom, you know, and then he cuts them off. He's like, everybody take your pen out, draw a line through Toya. We're not going after that record. And most was like, wait, what? And then he looked right at me down the table and he said, I listened to her album in my hotel last night. I don't like it anymore. We're not chasing Toya. Wow. So, I mean, I don't know, right? I, I think he made his, he sent me a message. And, you know, another thing that LA did, LA at one point said he wanted me to wear skirts and heels to work every day. And I started wearing jeans and Birkenstock clogs, you know, those ones, not just the sandal ones, the no, clogs. Yeah. Everybody, like dudes hate for chicks to wear. I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to wear. I wore them every day. I was just like, oh, no, dude, I'm not playing that game with you. And then it got worse and worse. And then Kanye, it was like audition, but mean pass. John, don't even audition. And then I was like, I'm out. This is a a no-go. What's crazy is that, you know, that that stuff happened to you. And then um, years down the road, you would would be a manager for Estelle, be on John Legend, which was on John's, you know, work on John Legend's label. Um, you have this Estelle record that comes out, have a huge hit with American Boy that has Kanye on it. So you, right. you have this is the video at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so you have you have this this album that has, and even Wyclef is working on that uh, that yeah. record. So you have this uh, this 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 album, you know, many years down the road that has this attachments to um, things that happened to you in the past. You know, what was your th- feeling about that Estelle record? So. When I, I left the music industry and went to Harvard Business School, John went on and got a deal, um, you know, obviously, and had won three Grammys by the time I graduated from business school. By this time I'm married, I have an infant and a two-year-old. And John called me and he said, I'm starting a label. It's going to be distributed by Atlantic Records and you have to run it because I trust your creative taste and you know, you can like add and subtract because you went to Harvard Business School. So you're like a business person I trust and a creative person. And I said to him, he'd already signed Estelle. And I said, look, one, you're hiring like a sleep deprived mother. So that's probably not a good idea. Two, all the people running Atlantic used to be at Def Jam. So Lear Cohen was the chairman of Warner Music Group, which is Atlantic's parent company. Julie Greenwald, the former VP of marketing at Def Jam, was the president of Atlantic. Kevin Lyles, the former promotions person when I was at Def Jam, was head of promotions. Mike Kaiser, like co-head of promotions. All these people that were team Russell were at Atlantic. And I had sued Russell for sexual harassment. I settled for $28,000 because there was a Def Jam American Express bill that they wouldn't pay. And I settled. and, And basically, Russell signed something acknowledging the harassment paying the lawyer 25000 and the American Express bill for 3000 and I didn't even round up to the nearest dollar because I didn't even want to take like a penny from this man. And these people knew that. And so 
I said without telling John that whole story, you might not want to hire me because I did not leave Def Jam on good terms. And the people running Atlantic are all the same people I worked with at Def Jam. So he was like, I don't care. I, it has to be you. I trust you. And then I was like, okay, well, if it's going to be me, then your album's not done. At the time, he thought the single was the song called More Than Just Friends, produced by this guy named Kizo Kane. I was like, no, 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 no. That's cool. That's like a top 25 R&B record. You need a number one pop record contender. You actually need five, because I work for Claude Davis. You need five number <laughs> one shots. So you need to call, you call Will I Am. I don't know Will I Am. You call Will, because they have the same manager. I'll call Wyclef. You call Swizzy. Let's both call Kanye. And they made American Boy at the Super Bowl, literally, because Will was going to be there. John's going to be there. I convinced Atlantic to fly Estelle down. They were like, Drew, your first week on the job and we're spending money to go send people to the Super Bowl. I didn't go. I had kids. I was like, I'm not going. Yeah. <laughs> they made American Boy, but Kanye wasn't on it. A year later, we were waiting for Kanye to produce a track. And I was like, you know what? Kanye's busy. Let's just put him on American Boy. That's it. And then I called him. I had this history with him, you know, where it was mad love in terms of our friendship. And I found out from my old assistant who was working at Universal that Kanye was going to be on the ground in New York for 36 hours on like, I don't know, 10 days from now. So I was like, send a car to Teterboro and bring him to Platinum. And that's how we made American Boy. And... That's, you know, we made, you know, Wyclef and Estelle were cutting. They made two records at Platinum. And, you know, it was all good until it became time to do marketing. I was having a ball when I was making the record. I love making records. Yeah. But then when it came time to do marketing and promotion, I had to go to Atlantic every day, sit in Julie Greenwald's office every day, ask Mike and Kevin Lyles for promo support every day and pretend like it was cool when those people said some very terrible things about me back when I sued Russell for sexual harassment. And frankly, when Julie Greenwald was the chief enabler trying to get me to go to the Hamptons when I worked for him when I was 23, knowing good and well why I didn't want to go. So it was so miserable to have to be around Lior, Julie, Kevin, Mike, day after day pretending like we're all cool because I wanted Estelle to get the shot that I quit three months before American Boy won a Grammy and a whole different manager sat next to her in the front row while I watched from home with my kids. And I was like, here I go again. Like, I can't get away from this cloud of this trauma yeah. that is making it impossible for me to work in this industry. And that's, that was when I truly was like, I'm done again for the third time I'm done. Do you have time for like one more question? Like, yeah. one, okay. All right. Um, a big part of uh, of this documentary was that you know you you know your journey with coming out with this story, and you said that like the Me Too movement movement like really you know it saved your life, but now this um this documentary is coming out during a whole other wave of the civil rights movement with the Black Lives Matter, which. Yeah also is kind of it's so strong that it's also there's effects in other ways where um other industries um are um you know outing their their like sort of um you know sexual sure. abuse sort of thing yeah. um recently there's big things in the wrestling uh industry gaming comic books and there was all these stories and one thing that i learned is like when you've heard all, all the stories you haven't heard them 
Right. You haven't even... Smoke, there's usually a lot more fire. There's like... You've only hit the tip of the iceberg, Uh you know? But like, what's your thoughts about this documentary coming out at this time when... There's so there's so many levels of uh, being shown in this documentary. There's racism. There's colorism. There's um, the light skin privilege. There's yeah. the the idea that you know black women have to protect black men. Um, and one of the things that a theme that's coming out of this Black Lives Matter mo- movement is that there's people saying that all black lives matter. And there's also you know, people that are reminding black folks themselves that all types of black folks matter, you know. So what's your thoughts about this, you know, documentary coming out during this wave of the civil rights movement? You know, I have really had to let go, oh my God, from the moment I decided to walk into the New York Times was sort of the moment I let go of a script that I'd been trying furiously to write and control from the day I got to New York and decided to make rap records and ignored a lot of really dangerous signs because I didn't want to be deterred in my mission. Yeah. And then when I was raped, trying to write that out of my story because I just didn't want to be the rape victim. I wanted to be the hit record maker. And so it's almost like I thought, well, if I don't say it, it's not true. Yeah, yeah. And what I realize now is that I was really limiting myself because so much of my power and creativity lived in the same box where I buried the pain. And so from the moment that I decided to say out loud to the world what Russell did to me, which I think is important for any survivor to realize that they may think they're only avoiding pain, but they're also avoiding the power that they have. And by keeping quiet, they're staying in the tiny little circle or the cage even created by their abuser who told them not to tell. They're becoming an accessory after the fact. They are really becoming enlisted by their abuser to help their abuser. And so whether if your abuser is famous, you tell the New York Times. If your abuser is a family member, you tell your family. You tell them to take the pictures off the mantle. Thank you very much, or I'm not coming to Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, whatever the ecosystem is where you were abused is the ecosystem that must honor you. If you are a descendant of confederates who raped your ancestors and the statues have to come down so you can walk around and not feel insulted every day you live in a country that you love but that needs to own up to its cruelty in terms of your heritage it's all the same to me in that way and you know i have let go of trying to control the outcome and so the fact that this film had a distributor and then lost a distributor had the executive producer who was the dream, my hero, who I still admire, but we lost her in Oprah Winfrey, that we went to Sundance with no distributor and we ended up with, I think, the best distributor imaginable on HBO Max because they'd been a partner and a soulful, sincere, authentically committed partner to all of the survivors in this film and they're in it for the long haul. You know, is why I'm not vexed that we came out with this very complicated, challenging, difficult story in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the sort of latest and I hope most impactful iteration of the civil rights movement, because I believe this is in God's hands. I believe I am no longer in any position to write the script or to have any opinion whatsoever about 
the next steps. I think this was what was meant to be. I thought that I would watch this film somewhere on May 27th when it came out with the other women in it, with the directors. And I watched it alone on my couch with my cats because I was in quarantine and I didn't even make it through it because I couldn't figure out how to download HBO Max. And then I had an interview and I've never had a breath to take since because it's been so crazy. But I believe that this film is a rare opportunity to look at the intersection of the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement. I think that the sexual violence perpetrated against Black women, and when I say women, that's really a euphemism for Black enslaved girls because the average age of the enslaved women was 15 in the Middle Passage. And those women were almost all, if not all, raped. More than half of the women were pregnant by the time they completed the Middle Passage. And I just don't think you can talk about systemic racism in America without talking about the systemic rape of black women and girls. We're the only group of women for whom it was economically advantageous to rape us because you could generate an asset in the form of an enslaved person, the lifetime value of a slave. And there's no other group of women for whom it was literally a good business decision to rape us. And if you don't look at the patriarchy and white supremacy and understand how the rape of black women and the disempowerment of black men in their attempts to defend us, which really began in the slave castles, is at the core of the Black Lives Matter movement, then I don't know what movement we're talking about. Black women have and will, and I know I always will fight for my men. I have a son. I was married to a black man. I love my, my men. I love my brothers. I will never not fight for them. I just would like some, some reciprocity. And I think it's like almost a cheat code to like overcoming finally is if we can actually be a united front and love each other equally and demand safety and protection and respect equally, I think we can finally get somewhere. But if the Black Lives Matter movement mimics the patriarchy, then it's like Animal Farm. We're just really copying our oppressors and that's not gonna get us anywhere. Right. That's a trap. <laughs> right, right. All right. I like to end uh, you know, some of my interviews with the same question and I um you know, had, had them send it over to you ahead of time. Who is somebody that, um, that you know that you would suggest that I have on this podcast that might have some good lessons or stories to talk about, you know, someone I can realistically get. And, um, music? it could be anybody, you know, music or anything. It can be one person or multiple people, you know, but if you have any, like, who's a suggestion that would be great for this podcast? So about music or about Black Lives Matter? Anything. Or, well, I mean, look, I cannot lie. The women in the On the Record film are brilliant. Those yeah. scholars, Joan Morgan, Kieran Mayo, Shanita Hubbard, I mean, all of them yeah. are just extraordinarily just informed, insightful, brilliant, talented. And so, I mean, I would say certainly Joan and Kierna, if you want to talk about hip hop history, yeah, those women helped to write it. Yeah. So for sure, I would say them, um, you know, I have a friend, Cheo Hadari Coker, who went to Stanford with me, who's a brilliant 
TV sort of showrunner who was the showrunner for Luke Cage. Okay. Um, but before that, he was also a hip hop journalist. He was famously punched in the face by Ghostface Killer when he was writing an article about Wu Tang, I think, for Vibe. <laughs> I think I remember that. Yeah. yeah. That. <laughs> and we actually went to our very first music business anything together, which was the Gavin Radio Convention in San Francisco. We drove there. I drove in my mom's car with our resumes, which we passed out in the lobby. So Cheo has some great stories and some great insight. Um, you know, so off the top of my head, those are the people who come to mind. Yo, the great, great, great suggestions. Yo, it's been great talking with you. Like so much, you know, great stories. Um, you are a very brave woman for, you know, coming forward, um, telling your story, um, you know, doing the documentary, you know, showing, I, you know, I see that you're, uh, you know, you're always on Twitter and everything, you know, putting it to people being like, yo, why, why don't you speak up for, uh, why are you still, you know, why aren't you an ally? You know, I thought you were my people's ego on Twitter. I'm like, Oh my God, what did I just say? But no, I think, you know, I think I, I, I feel very fortunate to be even seen and heard because of this film. So few survivors are ever seen and heard. And I feel yeah. like I have to take advantage of the fact that I have a platform to hold people accountable to make the point that there are no innocent bystanders when it comes to sexual violence. If you are not saying anything, you are enabling bad behavior. That's probably way worse when you're not around. And it got bad and it got that bad because the person who was the victim and the target of it saw you laugh off something that you thought was harmless and yeah. it made her feel like she had no one to turn to or him when it really got bad. So I feel like it's my job, you know, to, to try to keep this conversation going yeah. because it's not even about me anymore. I'm a 49 year old woman. I feel very fortunate in so many ways for whatever I've lost. I've also been very blessed in many ways, but I really do worry about younger survivors watching this conversation, watching the largely deafening silence in the music industry and among black people in positions of power that I think could lead us to losing not only another generation to this kind of abuse, which creates more victims, it creates more abusers. Yeah. Because abusers are victims themselves. And I really worry about boys who are being abused, boys who are learning the lesson that this doesn't matter. And you create a whole vicious cycle, which is really tragic for everyone. Yeah, it kills me like seeing what you are, what you were able to get done, but we are losing that what you could have done if none of this happened, you know? And, and I see that a lot and I've seen that a lot recently. And there was this hashtag speaking out where I was reading all these things from, you know, female wrestlers, you know, women wrestlers mm -hmm. to gaming people to uh, comic book people. And their stories were like, Oh my God, if none of this stuff happened, like, how different would it, everything be, you know? It would be crazy. I almost don't even dare go there. It's depressing I mean, it to even think. It took me forever to even go get my Golden Platinum records for this film because I didn't even want to look at them. I had to be like, I saw the rough cut for the first time of the film in November and I was like, wait, where are the plaques? They were like, Drew, we've been asking you that question this whole time. And then I was like, okay. And then I like went to my storage unit. Um, I try not to think about the records I could have made, 
you know, there are artists that suffer. There's a Toya suffered. Yeah. Toya's career ended. Kali Ranks is an artist I signed to Def Jam who I just walked away from Def Jam without any explanation in the middle of his album. We did one song, which was a duet with Lauryn Hill, and then we never did anything else. And he didn't know why until he read the New York Times. Somebody forwarded it to him. So he wondered for 22 years why I abandoned him. So there are artists that suffer. There are executives that suffer. There's music that doesn't get made. There are executives that I would have mentored. You know, one of my interns is a VP of A&R somewhere now. I would love to have helped other people, you know, move forward. I always try to help make everyone around me stronger. And I almost don't dare contemplate what I could have done because it's like such a dark, deep hole that I can't ever change that I really just try to reflect on the things I did get. I got married. I went to business school. I enjoyed business school thoroughly. I think I had the two best kids in the whole wide world, just my personal thing. <laughs> so, you know, I can't be mad, you know. I believe things happen for a reason, and maybe it was just meant to come full circle in this moment, and maybe I can help somebody now. And so I I am giving it to God. <laughs> well, it's been great talking with you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And before we get out of here, where can people go online to get more information? And if there's anything you want to plug, go ahead and plug it. Yes, I have an artist that I am working with, and I love her. She's the artist I hoped would walk in my door every day I did a and at and Arista, and I'm now glad that she didn't because I would not, have been, would not have been able to protect her creatively and as a human being. Her name is Ella Wild. Her mother was my kid's preschool teacher and read the New York Times article and asked me to listen to her daughter's music and give her some advice like weeks after the New York Times came out. I thought this was like the worst idea ever because I was persona non grata in the industry. I also thought it would be fine because I assumed that the artist would just be bad and I would just meet her and it would be over in 20 minutes. And she ended up being literally incredible. Like she writes hits, like literally off the dome. Her songs are like compositions, smashes, beyond. Her sense of commercial songwriting structure is amazing. But she's also edgy and cool. She's like Alanis Morissette meets Alicia Keys. She plays the guitar. She plays the piano. She has a gorgeous voice. She's a beautiful young woman. She has a super cool, authentic, quirky persona. (laughs) And she has three songs on iTunes and Spotify now. One of them, Medicine, is on some cool Apple chart right now that I don't even understand. But um, let's see. The name of the woman who did the chart. Let me see if I can find this. I posted it to my story. Okay, it's gone. Brooke, it's Brooke, oh my God, and she's like a big deal, and Brooke Reese. So Ella's song, Medicine, is on Brooke Reese's Apple chart, and Ella's song, Favorite Doll, which I actually wrote, is on another Apple chart called Who Runs the World, which has a lot of dope women on it. Okay. So Ella Wilde, Spotify, Apple Music, Medicine, Favorite Doll, check it out. I'm so proud of her, and I'm making her album now, and I cannot wait to share it with you. Yeah, I was just listening to uh, those joints before uh, talking. Yeah, they're really dope. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, where can people follow you online if they, you know to keep up with everything? You know, I am on uh, Instagram at Dear Drew Dixon, and I am on Twitter at Dear Drew Dixon. Um, I have a website that I don't love, but I can't remember the password, so I don't know. How to <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> All right, it's been great talking with you. If you can, uh, check out the documentary 
on the record. Comes from uh, it's on HBO Max. It's it's very eye opening, you know, and it's something that needs to be watched. You know, thank you, Drew Dixon, for being on the podcast. Um, I'm honored that you would you know even come talk with me. Thank you for listening to the Fresh of the Word podcast, hosted and produced by myself, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier, and powered by Anchor at anchor.fm slash Fresh of the Word. Fresh of the Word theme music provided by Steve O. You can find more of his productions at imsteveo.bandcamp.com, and that's E-Y-E-A-M-S-T-E-V-E-O.bandcamp.com. Fresh of the Word is available on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Fresh of the Word, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh of the word. Follow Fresh of the Word on social media on Twitter at Fresh of the Pod, on Instagram at Fresh of the Word Podcast, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Fresh the Word. For more information about Fresh of the Word and our other podcasts, Breaking Records and Renaissance Soul, and a collection of pop culture articles and reviews, please visit freshofthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Fresh is the word.